Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Neuroscience CME Clinical Chart Review. This continuing education activity is co-sponsored by Indiana University School of Medicine and by CME Outfitters, LLC. Indiana University School of Medicine and CME Outfitters, LLC gratefully acknowledge educational grants from Bristol Myers Squibb Company and Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated and from Pfizer Incorporated in support of this CE activity. This activity is titled Assessing and Managing the Patient with Bipolar Mania, Part 3. Our moderator for this activity is Dr. Roger S. McIntyre. Our distinguished guest faculty for this activity is Dr. Charles L. Bowden. Dr. McIntyre is the head of the Mood Disorders Psychopharmacology Unit at University Health Network and Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario. Dr. McIntyre has disclosed that he receives grant and research support from Eli Lilly and Company, Janssen Ortho Incorporated, and Shire Pharmaceuticals, as well as private industries or nonprofit funds, Stanley Medical Research Institute, National Alliance for Research on Schizophrenia and Depression. He serves on the advisory boards of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, BioVale Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Eli Lilly and Company, France Foundation, GlaxoSmithKline, Janssen Ortho Incorporated, H. Lundbeck AS, Organon, Pfizer Incorporated, Shearing Plow Corporation, Shire Pharmaceuticals, and Solvay Wyeth. He serves on the speaker's bureaus of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, BioVail Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Eli Lilly and Company, Janssen Ortho Incorporated, H. Lundbeck AF, Shearing Plow Corporation, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Bowden is Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, Texas. Dr. Bowden has disclosed that he serves as a consultant to Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Santa Fe Aventis, Shearing Plow Corporation, and Pfizer Incorporated. He receives grants from Abbott Laboratories Incorporated, GlaxoSmithKline, Janssen LP, National Institute of Mental Health, and Replogen Corporation. Disclosures of faculty financial relationships and full biographical profiles can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 447. Over the next hour, Dr. McIntyre and Dr. Bowden will review a patient case study and take questions from the audience. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. At the end of this CE activity, participants should be able to build therapeutic alliances with patients with bipolar disorder in order to optimize adherence. Those applying for nursing credit should be able to identify factors that contribute to treatment non-adherence among patients with bipolar mania. Presentation slides, along with a patient chart discussed during today's activity, can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 447 or call 877-CMEPROS. To receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the activity. Hello, it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's Neuroscience CME Chart Review. Clinical Chart Review Part 3, Assessing and Managing the Patient with Bipolar Mania. This is the third part in our series. I am Dr. Roger McIntyre. I am the Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at the University of Toronto and Head of the Mood Disorder Psychopharmacology Unit, University Health Network. I'm pleased uh, to be moderator for this Neuroscience CME Chart Review Series on assessing and managing the patient with bipolar mania. I'm pleased to introduce a colleague, Dr. Charles Bowden. Uh, Dr. Bowden is a clinical professor of psychiatry and pharmacology, University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, Texas. Welcome, Charles, to today's program. Thanks, Roger. Our case today is of Jim, a 36-year-old married man with bipolar 1 disorder who initially came with a, uh, a chief complaint not from the patient, but from the wife, concerned about recent changes in his sleep-wake pattern. He has a history of bipolar disorder dating back a number of years to age 18, um, 
mostly mixed episodes, prominent anxiety, and at least at times paranoia. He's had um, four episodes that have required hospitalization. He's not had a manic episode in the last six years. It does have a relatively specific pattern over time of mania followed relatively uh, shortly thereafter with a depressive episode and then a period of partial but rarely full euthymia. He has a fairly complex but not that unusual neuropsychiatric history in terms of medications. He was not able to tolerate uh, adequately uh, dosed lithium, carbamazepine, olanzapine, haloperidol, had relatively good control of manic symptoms with divalprox. Um, most antidepressants, uh, 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 at least one in a class, had been tried with him. Uh, most were ineffective. Again, one medication, lamotrigine, had provided partial alleviation of the depression, but it had really the best results with bupropion. Of, of the antipsychotics that had been tried, risperidone had seemed to be the best tolerated, but even it, in doses uh, over uh, one or so milligrams per day, were uh, associated with some extrapyramidal side effects. And he also had a tendency to overuse benzodiazepines and hydroxazine and similar medications for sedation. Um, he had partial insight into his illness. And he tended to alternate over time between visits where he wanted to see the psychiatrist too often and then postponing or delaying visits to the, to the psychiatrist. Tended to be socially isolated, including from his concerned always concerned and helpful family. A gradual increase in paranoia over recent years, uh, much of it focusing upon business issues that he d discussed with an attorney. Tended to be fearful of being rehospitalized and of having his medical records disclosed to authorities. Uh, angry with his wife, who'd called uh, to uh, the psychiatrist to prompt the, the present visit, reports that he's only been sleeping about four hours per night and generally finds that uh, adequate for the past couple of weeks, uh, at least by his self-assessment. Shares his plans to start a new computer support company, uh, spending about half of a, uh, the total 24 hour, hours out of a day at his computer, has some pressured speech and some psychomotor agitation. When the patient comes in for today's visit, we learn that he's taking the valproate at 1,000 milligrams at bedtime, uh, but he's not had a serum level checked for over four months. So it's not at all clear that that's an adequate dose of that component of his regimen. He also lets us know that he's taking quite a bit of valprazolam, a total of about eight milligrams every day. Uh, and probably that's contributing maybe to some of his cognitive deficits or lack of good judgment. Stop taking risperidone because he says it's been causing muscle cramps in his thighs and is up well into the early hours of, of the morning most nights. Now, it's pretty easy to make a diagnosis of a manic episode uh, in a case such as this. It's not so clear as to how we get this patient uh, back on an adequate medical regimen and how we deal with some aspects uh, that complicate that overall objective. Those are some excellent points, Charles, in terms of the uh, aspects of Jim that immediately jump out at us as you know, fo foci for clinical concern and highlighting the issue of adherence. I was particularly struck by his lack of insight or partial lack of insight in some ways and also struck by the polypharmacy, the multi-medications that he's taken uh, with a history of non-adherence. And certainly my experiences as a clinician of non-adherence uh, due to side effects is a wonderful way to turn patients off medications for a very long time. Let's focus on the issue of adherence. What do we know about adherence in individuals who have bipolar disorder? It's high, but it's not high across the board. Um, 
it's uh, that we tend to have, and, and my experience, and if one reads the literature on this, it supports this, a kind of bimodal curve, a, a substantial a majority, in fact, a proportion of bipolar patients who are very uh, adequately and e even meticulously adherent, but then uh, not so small. It depends on the, 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 the sample. But uh, at least 20 and in some uh, uh, reports as high as 40% of patients consistently poorly adherent. So it, it, it tends to be pretty much all or none, and I think that's kind of what we see with this fellow here. One of the interesting disconnects, which I think is something that all of us as healthcare practitioners need to consider, is that surveys evaluating adherence rates in bipolar disorder consistently report that the rate of non-adherence is rated as much lower in the healthcare provider versus the patient. In other words, healthcare providers are of the opinion that their patients are taking their medications at a rate much higher than they actually are. So there's often this disconnect between what we think our patients are actually up to and what they're actually doing. What are some of the factors, Charles, that mediate, that moderate, or predict non-adherence or adherence in bipolar disorder? Well, what you've mentioned, I think, is paramount, Roger. That, that's the patient's own understanding of what he needs, why he needs it, and what he needs it for. And, and clearly, this patient doesn't end up getting an A score on each and every one of those. That may in part be because, although cognition is not as disturbed in bipolar disorders and schizophrenia, that uh, the, the cognitive disturbance and working memory that is characteristic of bipolar disorder may contribute to this. There's also evidence that it's bidirectional, that if medications individually are in toto, uh, worsen cognition, worsen sedation, that, that in itself tends to push people, of course, away from taking it. The, the two actual adverse effects most associated with, with uh, poor adherence are uh, cognitive side effects to a regimen and, and weight gain. You know, one of the um, encounters I've seen on more than occasion in my clinical practice is a patient not adherent to medication because the medication was insufficient from the point of view of efficacy. In other words, patients doing well, they begin to have subsyndromal symptoms, and one of the first symptoms is loss of insight. And so as a result of symptom breakthrough, they have loss of insight, then they stop the medication. Historically, I always assumed it was stopping the medication that led to the relapse, but often the relapse was a reflection of insufficient efficacy, which then was followed by consequent non-adherence. Uh, do you see that often in your practice? I think that's, a, that, that's an, an excellent point, and it's really not adequately conveyed in most guidelines and most uh, uh, Manage, management approach or articles on patients, so that so that uh, the poor adherence is not just the, the uh, end result, the problem, but but a kind of marker for the the deteriorating condition. And it sounds like in the case of Jim, he had this partial euthymia. So one wonders always: are there symptoms that are if you will, uh, obscuring Jim's ability to appraise his illness and the need for treatment appropriately. Let me ask you this question, Charles. It's, it's, it's an easy question to ask, but not so easy to answer, uh, at least to really get it implemented with 100% success. What strategies can be used in our patients to improve adherence? Well, some I think are easy, Roger. You, you, can, you can determine uh, by uh, a serum level check uh, whether the valproate dose is adequate. The serum levels work for the few drugs we can use them. I think um, that patients are mostly honest with what they tell us, so it's not just uh, getting the information, it's getting the percentage of uh, and meaningful ad ad adherence improved. Now, this patient is an example of one thing that, that you can do, even though he wasn't particularly excited about his wife having called the psychiatrist. He clearly has, in this instance, a spouse who knows about his condition, uh, is sensitive to some of the manifestations of poor control. So to the degree, I think, that we can involve significant others in the patient's management, that's, that's really very helpful because 
they see this the patient every day. Even if we have this patient at weekly counseling, the counselors not not there all the time. So I I think involving significant others and poorly adhered patients is a is a real plus and. That involvement, I think, needless to say, but I'll say it anyway, also extends to uh, joining the patient for at least some visits in the doctor's office. Those are some excellent points. There, there is an academic literature, and I, and I preface academic because I work in an academic center, and we don't have the resources to implement some of the suggestions that come out of academic research. One of being, you know, there's a, a collaborative care model that would suggest that having, a, for example, a nurse involved or another allied healthcare professional involved, reaching out to the patient through phone or email, just to touch base, see how things are going. And um, something as simple as that, and obviously very cost effective, uh, seems to have a beneficial effect on adherence and bipolar disorder. Uh, frankly, I don't have the privilege of having such a resource, but I know some folks do have that resource, and I think that uh, one should not underestimate the effect size of these rel relatively benign interventions. I'm uh, fairly confident that many of the participants in today's program have patients in their practice who have seen improve substantially with medication only to watch the patient stop the medication followed by relapse and deterioration. And this, this terrible and vicious cycle we so often see in our patients leaves us often frustrated, leaves families frustrated, particularly the patient says to us, I don't need the medication, I'm fine. Uh, are there any types of tactics or strategies that you uh, would uh, think about or you would employ in your practice for that patient who really insight is the great barrier for them? I don't think that we have uh, uh, regimens that uh, improve insight. If, if you look at uh, most uh, studies of uh, acute mania, most clinical trials, um, regardless of the drug, lithium, valproate, antipsychotics, the inside item is not the one that moves in the direction of improvement nearly as much as some of the mood and, and activity energy type items. So, so uh, just looking at a rating scale kind of result, it would say that we're going to more have to deal with that by external structuring. Some of that is the visits that the person has with the psychiatrist, at least here in the U.S., Usually, a counseling component of that is going to have to be managed. Uh, I think if you can get a patient to uh, effectively engage, they'll usually stay engaged. But uh, the, oftentimes, the front end part of engaging in, in a psychoeducational effort is no easier than is the medication part. Those are some very good points indeed. I'm glad you raised the the issue about measurement. Uh, in our previous issue of the Journal Club, we did speak about measurement-based care in bipolar disorder, and I certainly have found that when I include systematic measures of symptoms, of side effects, and also checking in with patients about adherence not only to the medication, but adherence to their psychotherapy, I've often found that patients see that as a reminder, they see that as a psychoeducation, and uh, for me, it's a reminder always to be engaging the patient around uh, aspects of non-adherence, probably one of the major modifiable deficiencies we have in managing our patients. Well, uh, Charles, our time has gone by very quickly uh, in discussing and sharing the case of Jim. I want to thank you uh, for sharing your insights with us today. You certainly have answered the questions that I have at this point. I'd now like to open our lines to our listeners and provide them the opportunity to ask Dr. Charles Bowden questions pertaining to Jim, non-adherence, and the management of bipolar disorder. While we're waiting to take our audience questions, I just want to remind you that there are additional online resources at www.neurosciencecme.com. At the conclusion of our session today, our Q&A session, you will be automatically redirected to this site. Again, www.neurosciencecme.com. I would encourage you to take advantage of this evidence-based resource. Charles, we have a lot of questions, and I think that it really speaks to the residents that the case of Jim has uh, in it, and I, I thank you for the case. I'm an, uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to now uh, go to our web, and I'm going to begin some of the uh, questions here, and in no uh, order of priority, I'm just going to take them as they come at me here. Do we, in fact, have any evidence? This is a, a timely question, given the high rate of use 
of illegal substances and people who have bipolar disorder. Is there any research, Charles, that speaks to the use of marijuana in bipolar disorder? Uh, the provocative part of the question, is there a benefit in marijuana, and is there a harm in using marijuana in bipolar disorder? Uh, unfortunately, if you ask uh, some persons who use marijuana regularly, they'd say they do uh, experience benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, e- even interestingly, and I've never seen any studies on this, Roger, uh, I've, I've had patients tell me that they feel uh, something akin to uh, a, a stimulant, a dextroamphetamine effect, mm-hmm. uh, that, that their uh, disorganized, poorly structured thinking actually improves. Now, that's only anecdotal, So, but that, that would cause the patient, in terms of a kind of Pavlovian response, <clears throat> to want to return to the marijuana. Uh, on the other hand, where we do have evidence, it's not specifically in bipolar disorder to my knowledge, but it, but I'm sure that it applies in bipolar disorder, is the adverse impact of uh, marijuana on sleep. And sleep is more than just eight hours of uh, being uh, a kind of unconscious. Lots of things go on in sleep. Uh, we, we dream our, our brain is a, is a, a kind of constellation of, of manufacturing plants that uh, make most of the neurochemicals that are the drugs that we use, in fact, are trying to either enhance or, or moderate and if, if the production is excessive. And uh, sleep studies clearly show that it's not only marijuana, but certainly marijuana as much so as alcohol, that the efficiency of sleep is very much uh, disrupted. Now, that may seem paradoxical and that, uh, marijuana can uh, create a sense of sleepiness. So, so in terms of front-end effect, uh, the person may not recognize the disruption. And the disruption doesn't, it, it, again, it's not just a, a disruption in terms of number of hours of sleep, but it's what happens during sleep in terms of production of the very chemicals that allow us to be alert, allow us to process information, allow us not to be uh, cognitively impaired. Um, uh, so one of the reasons that there's a disconnect between uh, the, a kind of liberalization, um, even amongst uh, many conservative persons outside medical fields, and a, and a relatively consistent across the board, not just for bipolar disorder, um, uh, clinician and an investigator uh, professional recognition of uh, substantial harm from use of marijuana. It's an excellent point. It puts me in mind of the use of alcohol. There's no question that alcohol will increase the number of eyes, uh, hours a person is sleeping, but the effect on the sleep EEG, the polysomnography scan, is certainly uh, adverse. And so uh, I think that there's um, uh, a number of um, suggested benefits only to be belied by the um, uh, really the adversity of using these types of treatments. It's an interesting one just to build on because we have evidence now emerging that the cannabinoid receptors play a critical role not only in mood regulation but also in uh, modulating immune systems, perhaps even the cortisol stress axis. And I think that the cannabinoid receptor um, is an area that's receiving a lot of attention in various scientific circles, and we're going to hear more about it, but for now... Uh, the evidence is stacked pretty much in favor of the adversity that's imparted by marijuana and bipolar patients. Here's a, a common situation, uh, Charles. As you know, we, we often see people with bipolar disorder who complain bitterly of neurocognitive deficits. And it's well established that the neurocognitive deficits in, a, in someone who has bipolar disorder may persist into the so-called well interval. Um, the so-called asymptomatic interval. Do you have any treatments that you think about during this maintenance phase for the cognitive deficits, people who are asymptomatic? And I I use that somewhat hesitantly because I think cognitive deficits are part of the illness. But for now, they're not manic, they're not depressed, they're complaining and or they exhibit cognitive deficits during the maintenance phase. Any treatments that you find are helpful? 
Well, I appreciate the question on the one hand. I kind of wish you hadn't asked it on the other because it's not a simple <laughs> answer, Roger. I, 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 I try to tease apart what the person is complaining about. Is it, is it uh, memory, and is that because of, of sedative effects of a drug? Is it, is it uh, memory? And patients oftentimes focus on memory. They're not going to come and, and say to you, Doctor, I'm having... Uh, problems with executive function impairment. Um, is, is it memory that's a, a consequence of high levels of uh, anxiety, fearfulness, uh, and especially fearfulness in a social situation? I think there are different strategies for those. If it's a, a kind of uh, distractibility that in rating scales that we would uh, also uh, rate uh, as um, pressured speech, um, um, rapid thoughts, racing thoughts, uh, I think that responds to mood stabilizers, uh, perhaps actually better to um, traditional mood stabilizers, lithium valproate, uh, than, than to other mood stabilizers. Um, if, if it has to, to do with anxiety, I think we have less evidence-based treatments. But I try to address anxiety because I think anxiety contributes to distractibility. Um, it causes a person not to stay on track. Um, I'm not a fan of benzodiazepines because I think they have some of the uh, downstream adverse effects on cognition. Well, we know that. Uh, so I try to limit uh, patients' use of anxiety. You'll often see patients who will say, um, I'm anxious um, and I can't really think straight. Uh, I'm taking a substantial dose of a benzodiazepine. Therefore, give me more benzodiazepine because I'm anxious and I can't think straight. So <laughs> the, the patient asks for more of or uses on his own of a drug that's actually contributing to the problem. So I try to re remove, in the case of benzodiazepines or other sedative agents, um, and sometimes sedative properties uh, are associated with some drugs in a class and not others. Uh, we see more sedation, for example, with cotyopine mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and olanzapine and, uh, and consequent uh, cognitive problems in terms of, of, of that than we would, uh, mm -hmm. if at all, with that's a helpful way to think about it. Um, as you were uh, speaking about the various treatments, I couldn't agree more. I began to think about uh, a modality that was reported on a couple of months ago in the archives of general psychiatry, and that's the, the modality of exercise therapy. Uh, there was a, a fabulous paper published two months ago where, again, it was not in bipolar disorder, so that's an important preface, individuals with schizophrenia obviously a condition characterized by severe neurocognitive deficits, and they were subjected to a regimen of exercise for 12 weeks. It was a very uh, um, scheduled, it was a well, uh, um, if you will, it was an intense aerobic exercise program. And not only was there uh, improvements in neurocognition that were quite robust, but also changes in brain structure and brain uh, chemical alterations that were thought to be beneficial. So it, was, it, was, it certainly provides a very intriguing hypothesis or stimulates, if you will, the hypothesis that the same may hold true or similar may hold true in bipolar disorder. So that is still an open question, but I thought it was very interesting indeed. Here's a, I, think, a, yeah. I think it's more than, a, than a, an hypothesis, Roger, because there's substantial evidence that exercise really helps. If exercise helps, probably uh, also... Uh, Adequacy of sleep helps. So uh, even if the, uh, the evidence is not specifically in patients such as in, in this case, uh, those are good strategies. Uh, uh, there is one other drug strategy that I think is important. If we think of stimulants as ranging from uh, the mildest, caffeine or something, uh, th through pharmaceuticals, uh, dextroamphetamine and its various forms, I think there's substantial evidence in bipolar disorder that uh, used in, in uh, moderation or appropriate doses, some caffeine in the, in the way of coffee, uh, some stimulant uh, as an adjunct to treatment in bipolar disorder can be helpful 
and selected individuals. Very, very helpful point. One of the questions that's come in, Charles, relates to a, a comment that I um, uh, was responsible for during our earlier discussion, and that is the adherence rates. And just to, someone was just seeking clarification, and I just want to just remind people, when we look at the adherence rates, at least as reported by patients, there, there tends to be an overestimation of adherence. And what, there, what the literature has been telling us is if you look at anonymous reports, where in other words, if patients are allowed to fill out a questionnaire and that questionnaire won't find its way back to their healthcare provider, the patients provide what we think is perhaps a, an answer more aligned with uh, reality. Um, adherence rates are low, and you talked on that, Charles. And, and, and what was striking, though, is when you talk to healthcare providers, healthcare providers consistently overestimate how adherent their patients are. And that was just something I just wanted to clarify. So what I'm getting at is, is that, um, um, you know, if, if you have an assumption that your patients have a high rate of adherence, which I've been guilty of on many occasions, um, you're probably like me. You've been wrong on, on many occasions as well. The low adherence has been the rule rather than the exception. Coming back to the questions, if I could, one of the questions comes in, and it's an important issue, sleep difficulties in the bipolar patient. How would you go about addressing that? From a treatment perspective, Charles, someone is taking a, a regimen uh, for the maintenance treatment of bipolar disorder, yet, like so many of our patients, is complaining about difficulties with initiating and or maintain, maintaining sleep. Well, if a patient is complaining, it's relatively easy. Um, I look first at sleep hygiene. It's too long to discuss that in detail, but it's all those things that a patient can do on his or her own are an absolutely dark environment in, in which to sleep, recognizing that, that the bipolar patient is likely to be one of the owls rather than one of the larks of the world, and feel quite comfortable with staying up to 1, to 3 a.m., and then staying in bed, uh, work, and other responsibilities allowing to 8, 9, 10 in the morning. Uh, um, all the evidence indicates that that's an ineffective way to to sleep. So uh, understanding what constitutes healthy sleep, and that's not simply managed by writing a prescription for a medication. Uh, as I indicated earlier, I, I tend to stay away from uh, benzodiazepines and uh, gabaergic uh, medications. That means I end up using off-label uh, medications in many instances, sometimes just uh, 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 sedative uh, drugs with uh, histaminergic mechanisms, and uh, hydroxyzine and things like that. Sometimes I would use very low doses of um, uh, second-generation antipsychotics, both for their sedative effects and maybe a, a to a limited time to get into this, but evidence that any kind of sleep disruption tends to overactivate uh, dopaminergic activity in the brain in an unhealthy fashion. So I think that there are two reasons to consider medications that might dampen or modulate in a downward fashion dopaminergic overdrive. Uh, one, some sedative properties in the, in the uh, getting to sleep uh, realm, and the other uh, counteracting the consequences on dopaminergic activity in the brain uh, of simply not getting to sleep. Very helpful comments, Charles. I appreciate that. I want to ask our operator if we have any questions from any of our participants, any live questions. Through uh, the phone. Thank you, sir. And just a reminder to our uh, phone participants, if you do have a question, press star and one. And it does appear we have a question from the side of Basante Basu. Go ahead, please. Your line is open. Um, thank you, Dr. McIntyre, as well as the, the other doctor from Texas. Dr. Bowden, Very interesting. Yep. What I wanted to know was, you know, the comorbid conditions, they are getting so frequent and the rapid cycling, whether they are the rapid cyclers or is it the substance abuse that is causing them to have those kinds of mood swings, what do you think that one should do? Is it just the mood stabilizers? And what are the, you know, where, where are the clients, which clients we should use the dextroamphetamines if we have to use it? So a couple of questions there. First being um, uh, separating out substance abuse from rapid cycling and 
what's caused, what's the effect, and the second one is the role of stimulants in our bipolar patients. Charles? Yes, thank you. Well, the first one, we can't simply do cross-sectionally. Uh, we can only tell the degree to which substance abuse are, for, for that matter, I think a, a bigger problem uh, overall, uh, various antidepressants uh, either used without uh, any mood stabilizer or without an adequate dose of a mood stabilizer. So we have to follow the patient to see how much that clears up if simply the offending agent, whether it's alcohol or some other uh, abusable uh, drug or a prescription drug for principally for depression. Um, and the patient has to understand that uh, how important it is to clarify that. And in terms of when to use a stimulant, unfortunately we don't have much good evidence, but there actually are case series. You know, one of the ones that, that I uh, use fairly frequently is a case from the early 80s at the university. It's not a case, but a series of cases of use of uh, uh, stimulants in hospitalized manic patients. Uh, now, it was an open trial, but by um, an astute and, uh, at that time, um, I think, good clinical investigator. So there, there's some data that um, in the right patient, in the right dose, <coughs> uh, at least in adults, and I, I think that uh, the, the issue is more complex and less clear-cut when we come to kids with ADHD and the, uh, the appropriateness of stimulant treatment in the course of treating comorbid as the the caller indicated is so commonly the case, comorbid ADHD along with bipolar disorder. So uh, I, I would not extend that uh, without major qualifications into youth with bipolar disorder. But in, in adults, um, if a person has problems dealing with distractibility and um, activity level, uh, one can see some benefits with low-dose um, um, stimulant-type medications. Very helpful indeed. One of the um, experiences I've had is the usage of stimulants in bipolar patients, and my experience would be, um, in many ways, resonate with some others and certainly some of the published literature on this, and that is, is if we are able to bring some element of stability to the bipolar component and then use a stimulant thereafter, one finds oneself in less hazardous situations. In other words, trying to get some of the, obviously the mania under control and some of the mixed features under control, um, that seems to be a helpful, at least tactic in the short term. Uh, again, I want to highlight that psychostimulants are not FDA approved in bipolar. That would be an off-label use of those treatments. Um, I want to emphasize that. On that note, I wanted just to uh, solicit your input on this one, uh, Charles. Some people have uh, sent some emails into us saying, we're using the word adherence. Is that the right word, or is that unnecessarily hierarchical or patronizing? What's your response to that? Well, I don't use the word uh, adherence uh, generally uh, in, in uh, talking with patients uh, uh, I do spend a lot of time talking about <laughs> adherence, but I usually, usually do that in terms of a dialogue about the, the patient's structure of his or her day and a substantial amount of time going over how the person actually takes the medication. The patient may think that he's taking it exactly right, but as uh, um, you and most of the persons listening on this know, um, when you actually ask patients, oftentimes what they're doing is amazingly <laughs> divergent from what was prescribed. So they think that they are adherent, but they've made in the course of the past two months between visits, let's say, um, uh, several changes that you would not know about if you didn't ask about that. Uh, what I try to couch this in in terms of language is a person coming to 
understand that that he needs to own his disease. That uh, he has bipolar disorder, so it's not a question of what I force him to do. It's a question of what he does in the 99% of uh, waking and sleeping and hours that take place outside the doctor's office. Yeah, that's very, very helpful, and I would agree. I, I don't tend to use the word adherence. Uh, it's really uh, trying to work together with the patients on, in, in these areas, and, and I, I don't, that's not really part of my lexicon when speaking with patients. Let, let's actually come back if we can to a, a more specific question, Charles, we could, um, and that is, and we'll take one question from the Internet, we'll go back out to our operator for another uh, call uh, from one of our participants. That is, the medications that we we use in bipolar disorder um, and acute mania, for example, is often, an, well, it's often an antimanic, either alone or in combination, a typical antipsychotic conventional mood stabilizer. We've had several questions about dosing during the maintenance phase. Uh, if I could summarize several questions, what I would say is, as a clinician, would you tend to maintain the same regimen during the maintenance phase? And on a related note, would you maintain the same dose during the maintenance phase when compared to the acute regimen and acute dosing? Well, you're getting an expert opinion more than an evidence-based opinion, uh, Roger, and the person who uh, asked the, the trenchant question. Um, two different answers. Um, I, I think, actually, this is relatively evidence-based. If we simply look at the data from practice, it's not just uh, acutely manic patients who are treated with more than one agent. Um, depends on, again, the, the sample source. But uh, in most studies, even long-term, even in uh, circumstances of evidence-based, high-quality care, for example, the NIMH-funded STEP bipolar disorder program, um, the average patient is on at least three medications. So uh, the answer to whether I would end up with a monotherapy regimen in most instances in maintenance is clearly no. Now, um, does that mean that the uh, primary and adjunctive medication identical to what was used in the acute phase? Not necessarily, but there is evidence uh, that if a medication is efficacious and well-tolerated in the acute phase, it's likely to be at least up to the duration the study, 6 to 12 months, uh, also efficacious. It may not be so well-tolerated. So I think that the presumption is to continue it. Um, on the issue of dose, there, there are not good data but my practice, uh, I, and I, I think if we had data, it would support this. Mm -hmm. yeah, I would agree. Try cautiously to lower the dose across the board. <clears throat> I would agree with you uh, in, in in your comments, indeed, Charles. Um, one of the uh, questions that's come up, so the theme again has been a repeat uh, theme, and that's the issue of weight gain changes in body composition, metabolic parameters. We as clinicians are often using medications that are hazardous. They can, they can engender their own difficulties there. They can certainly uh, exacerbate pre-existing problems. How do you go about managing that in your bipolar patients? And more specifically, it's a broad topic, more specifically excess weight, patients who are overweight, obese. What's your approach to managing that? That's been a fairly common theme. Well, it's to, to treat it seriously, Roger, uh, not to rationalize it as a, a small price to pay for not being uh, manic a quarter of the time. Uh, the consequences on general health uh, and on, uh, on any major life-shortening uh, kind of bodily systems are so great that I don't think we can uh, justify continuing uh, any regimen that's associated with problems in, in those areas. The, uh, um, the, uh, 
there are a substantial number of medications by different medications, uh, even, for example, serotonin reuptake inhibitors that are associated with uh, weight increase. So uh, we want to stay away from medications that in, the, in any individual patient are causing uh, weight gain. And maybe the first thing to do is to see if uh, a lower dose will work. I think with some medications with um, uh, lithium and valproate, there's evidence that lower doses will be associated with less weight gain. That's not so clear with uh, the peen type, type drugs, olanzapine, um, uh, ketiapine. Um, there is evidence that some patients actually lose weight, especially if, if they're initially uh, have elevated BMI uh, scores, uh, taking lamotrigine, and there's some evidence from uh, ziprazidone studies, uh, adjunctive to lithium or valproate, <clears throat> that patients actually lost a little bit of weight with uh, with that particular SGA. Yeah, I want to pick up on that if I can, Charles. I think that uh, the days are long gone where we can, uh, for reasons maybe for convenience or other reasons, not attend to those uh, matters of our patients. The physical health matters clearly uh, carry with them their own uh, risks, and they also have a bidirectional relationship with bipolar disorder. Uh, for example, there's emerging evidence that if you are someone who's overweight or obese, or to extend that further, you have diabetes or metabolic syndrome, as so many of our patients do. The rate's much higher than the general population. Your course, your outcome may be less favorable uh, when compared to a person with bipolar who is not in that uh, category. So I think uh, as we're talking about long-term outcome, adherence, uh, getting the treatments right, we need to alter those factors, those variables that are modifiable, and these are one of the modifiable factors. To our operator, any questions from any of our participants via the telephone? Yes, sir. We now have a question from the side of Jay Thompson in Los Angeles. Go ahead, please. Uh, when, uh, do you have any specific parameters? We talk about exercise in general. We talk about uh, various things in general. What are specific uh, as far as trying to reduce, I guess, the mania portion of bipolar mania? I mean... How long should these patients, if they're in fairly decent physical health, be exercising, and what should they be doing? Good question. Charles, your thoughts? Um, I don't think there's any any good evidence on this. If you, if you look at the literature, uh, just in terms of uh, the impact of exercise on weight, it, 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 there's not a one-to-one -one relationship in terms of uh, how people exercise. In some ways, exercise more is a reminder of a healthy lifestyle overall. So even if the exercise per se is not resulting in uh, uh, burning off calories, it still has a useful role. It puts the, the patient, uh, as long as it's not too closely tied to the hour of bedtime, uh, in um, uh, an exercise-induced in, in, tiredness and and a, a, a more somnolent-seeking uh, uh, mode. So that's useful. Uh, also, the exercise then contributes to better sleep at night. And there are some recent studies, not in bipolar individuals, but there's no reason to think they would not apply. The effectiveness of sleep not only helps uh, those of us listening to this who treat bipolar patients, but it helps uh, other individuals that inadequate sleep is associated with proneness to weight gain, probably, again, because that brain is not making the uh, appropriate uh, uh, functional levels of noradrenergic and, and dopaminergic substances uh, to keep the person active and calorie burning uh, during the day. So uh, the specifics, I think, geez, it varies so much. Uh, uh, you, you can't tell. I have one patient who runs between 50 and 75 patients, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, um, uh, miles 
uh, every week. And he views uh, his health, uh, overall uh, positive uh, mental health, as sort of directly proportional to that. So for him, that's really great. And the guy is uh, over 60, but uh, it would be foolish for me to try to, with this one patient, Okay, let me ask you a question, because what I'm trying to do is to uh, get some, one of the criticisms of uh, a lot of psychiatry in many instances is that there are no specifics. Uh, if I'm dealing in medicine, I'm dealing with blood pressure, I can take that with a, spin, uh, a manometer and end up getting the blood pressure. I mean, that's a de- definitive. And I think uh, being an internist, this is one of the things that really bothers us about psychiatry. We talk about, well, let's let them run. Let's let them do this. This guy does this so many times. This, uh, there should be some specific minimums that these patients should be doing if you're advocating that they get benefits from this and with their, uh, their, the mania associated with bipolar, uh, the bipolar disease. So uh, now we have, we've, we've mentioned also sleep. How much sleep? Are we talking about four? I was at a conference where they had uh, physicians uh, out here in the Biltmore Hotel and what have you, and uh, they asked the audience, how many hours of sleep do your average get? These are 500 physicians, and about uh, two people raised their hands uh, when they said eight hours. At six hours, there are more. At four hours, there are most and what have you. I mean, how many hours should you think a patient with bipolar mania uh, where you're having, you're trying to utilize sleep uh, as a restful state to uh, stabilize them hormonally or medically. How many hours should they be getting? Charles, I guess that's a specific question. What would be considered optimal duration of sleep for a person with bipolar disorder? I think the the evidence for sleep, although it's derived not principally from uh, bipolar studies, is that. Uh, Less than six hours is inadequate, and in, if anything, it's uh, uh, studies over the past several years uh, uh, strongly suggest, and this is across uh, uh, age uh, spectra, uh, that most persons should be receiving seven hours. But it's it's both that amount, and as I indicated, when that occurs, that it needs to occur in in the dark when the, when the sun is is not up. So seven hours, uh, half of which is uh, uh, during the time of sunlight, is not the same as seven hours while asleep. For even for exercise, um, I think the the there is substantial evidence that thirty to forty-five minutes of exercise three or so times a week is feasible for most persons uh, unless they have extraordinary other medical problems, orthopedic and the like, uh, that would that would cause one to to establish a, uh, a less vigorous in terms of time and in terms of frequency kind of schedule. We're going to move back to the web now for some more questions. I'm just going to follow up, and this is a reminder uh, and uh, in response to our colleague who just uh, had that comment, keep in mind that our patients with bipolar disorder are no different than patients who are obese or diabetic from the point of view of recommendations. The American Diabetes, American Obesity Association, many organizations have guidelines as to how much, how little people should be exercising. And, uh, yes, we want to see a separate study in bipolar disorder. That goes almost without saying. Uh, but until that's done, there's no reason why uh, what's good for the general population wouldn't be good for someone with bipolar. So there are recommendations out there from other professional organizations that would apply to people with bipolar disorder. And, in fact, given the overweight, obesity, metabolic syndrome, diabetes rates and bipolar, they are in many ways in that risk group and should be stratified in that way. We have many questions from many people around the uh, need to have multidisciplinary uh, professionals involved. I couldn't agree more. Charles, you and I spoke with that during the earlier part of the session and, uh, again, exercise is one part, but I think when, you, when we really think about the everyday management of bipolar, there's no question that a clinician working on his or her own with a prescription pad, that is not good enough. Uh, we do need allied health professionals to work with us to uh, develop chronic disease models for our patients and implement many of the treatments that, we're, that uh, 
uh, are beyond medications that are helpful during the long term. There are several questions uh, that I think are very intriguing here regarding the aspect of dementia, uh, neurodegeneration. Um, uh, Charles, I'm going to try and, if I can, summarize what half a dozen questions. We've got so many questions here today. And, 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 and I'll put it this way. Do individuals with bipolar disorder have a higher uh, rate of dementing conditions? And I'm going to broadly define that as mild cognitive impairment, vascular dementia, uh, Alzheimer's disease, and is there anything that we can do to forestall or prevent such an occurrence? I know of no evidence that indicates that, that they have any increased uh, uh, risk at, at all. Um, I don't think that they would be exempt from uh, uh, d dementia. Um, I think it would be uh, fairly difficult to study simply because of the um, the long time frame from identifying an individual as bipolar, having a, a control group. Um, so I, um, unless and until some study other than, and here I think just epi epidemiologic databases would not be very helpful on, on that point. That, that I think one might, one does see persons with bipolar disorder who recognize that they have distractibility or who recognize that they have some uh, attentional deficits uh, or during manic states, especially some executive function impairment. That does seem to improve once manic symptomatology is under control. The person may uh, couch this in terms of his own worry and uh, his report to a physician in terms of uh, am I coming down with Alzheimer's. But that's that's not the case. Uh, it needs to be addressed for what it is, part of the symptom, symptomatology of bipolar disorder, uh, different from uh, dementia, different from um, even from, at least in degree, in general, from the severity and uh, proportion of patients with substantial and sustained cognitive impairments and schizophrenia. So, so it's it's a problem and it uh, requires our attention, but not in terms of predisposing, uh, based on current evidence, toward increased rates of any of these dementias as uh, Roger classified them. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, and particularly when you look at the epidemic of uh, uh dementia that's anticipated to 10, 20 years out, and uh, this is an intriguing area. There clearly is a high association between mood disorders, major depressive disorder, and dementia, and that's been well characterized in both autopsy studies as well as in epidemiological studies. Uh, the bipolar story, so to speak, is I think still waiting to be told. Uh, I would conjecture, and this is my own conjecture, uh, that many people who have been diagnosed as having major depression who are, who are included in those mood disorder dementia studies probably had bipolar disorder. It's a reasonable conjecture given the rates of bipolar. Uh, and also we've learned that lithium may in fact have an anti-amyloid effect, uh, which is an interesting notion that's now been published on in many preclinical studies. So I think that's going to be, I appreciated that question. I think it's going to be a series of questions. We're going to hear more about that in the future. We only have another about, about a minute or two left. Charles, I'm going to give you the last question here, and we'll need a short answer because we only have about a minute and a half before we're going to sign off. People get back to their offices. And that is, is that when we have a person with bipolar disorder uh, in our clinics and we're tracking them, um, uh, you know, with, er with er everyday management and with measurement-based care, um, one of the questions that has come up is a role for nutrition. Uh, again, this is a, a theme of uh, we've been speaking to that's physical aspects of our patients. Is there a role for any nutrition uh, interventions? I don't know specifically what people are referring to, but I often think about folates, B12s, multivites, macronutrients, omega-3s. Uh, so it's a big topic. I know you can't cover it all within 45 seconds to a minute, but any any short uh, statements around that? I think that um, in general, um, with bipolar disorder, one wants to avoid anything that exacerbates all the inherent affective instability in patients and and um, um, diet high in um, uh, fructose uh, simple sugars 
are likely to cause uh, larger fluctuations in, in uh, glucose metabolism, for example. Uh, in terms of the specific uh, uh, possible positives of the omega-3s, B vitamins, in, in general, those studies with omega-3 show that uh, you just don't get enough brain penetrance, or that's uh, uh, a mechanistic explanation of why the, the studies have not shown any benefit. They don't show harm for those in terms of uh, CNS function. They are beneficial, I think, in terms of cardiovascular uh, system function, but not in terms of CNS based on current data. Charles, thank you very much for your response, not only to that question, but to the barrage of questions. We have a torrent of questions from folks, and I think it really speaks to what we're looking for. That's real-world responses, real-world questions coming up here. We haven't even scratched the surface in terms of some of the questions that have come in, and I apologize to those who didn't have your questions answered either through the web or through the telephone. We just simply had that many, dozens and dozens of questions coming in. Charles, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I really uh, appreciate your your insights, helping us translate this evidence into the improvement in practice. And also thanks to all of our audience for joining us today. If you're not able to get your question answered, so many of you were not able to, please send us an email to questions at cmeoutfitters.com. Uh, send us the question uh, within the next 14 days. Uh, Dr. Bowden and I will try to answer the questions online if we can, and we will post the responses at www.neurosciencecme.com slash 446. I'm Dr. Roger McIntyre, thanking you for taking the time to join us today. I hope you are able to incorporate the evidence that we've shared with you into your practice to improve the care of your patients. Thank you. Thank you.